Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. I forgot to thank one organization which is helping us out here. It is noticed that the person works for CKXWXU. Broadcasting live as we know, and as we can see for the service. Another thing which Hamoud uh, um, asked me to announce is there is going to be a lecture sponsored by the University of Lenten's Brenda, Brenda Nona Lecture System. Dr. Frieser Miller. She is a molecular developmental mirror in the hospital of six children. She's going to speak at Westbridge College, New York Church, and made a speech from seven months. She's going to speak about the hope and the hype. Stem cells for Brain Depression, a special lecture sponsored by the University of Western. That's my lecture on Wednesday, November 6th. Now, you are still enjoying dinner and lunch, and that's a good one. Not too much preambles. <laughs> this is a time to ask questions, not to advertise yourself. So uh, restrict your question to one or two, and after finishing your question, please go back to your seat. Uh, and also, uh, anybody who is too shy to come up to the microphone, actually, I don't believe this. But anyway, if there is such a person, you can write in the question. So I'll be standing here as a moderator during the question period. So if you write your question on a piece of paper, please raise your hand. I'll come and pick it up. So, Craig, it's time for you to answer questions from people. You have half an hour. A whole half an hour. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks very much for coming today, Craig. It was uh, very enlightening to listen to what you had to say. Uh, my question relates to, uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the future of remote sensing? Where do you see it going in the, f in the future in terms of uh, uh, convincing people that uh, we, need to, we may need to change uh, the way we do things here on Earth? Well, <coughs> I guess that's kind of a two-parter. Uh, the first one is the future of remote sensing, and the second one is what we're going to do with it all. And that's that's kind of those are again two. Well, we're going to parse those into two separate pots for now. Um, what do I see as the future? Well, we know that we've got an ever-increasing number of these Earth observation efforts ongoing, 
And it's part of what we like to call the Global Earth Observation System of Systems. You can, you can look that one up too. Uh, the GEOS. Uh, the acronyms are terrible. I'm very sorry, but they're just, there's lots of them. At, at any rate, so the conceptually, that's the goal. And I've been to a few meetings where the world players are discussing how they integrate their systems. So it's very important that, for example, NASA doesn't just play in this particular sandbox all by themselves. Um, <clears throat> recently, they've put together with uh, Aqua, one of the sensors we were looking at the images from. Um, they put that together with a bunch of other space agencies in what's called the A-Train. So there's actually a, a set of aligned orbits where various satellites are looking in the, essentially in the same orbital path on the same sweep at a number of different climate variables all simultaneously so that the efforts are a lot more coordinated than they would have been. So at these events, you know, the, the Japanese space agency will be there, the Europeans will be there, uh, the Chinese are even coming the Americans are there, of course, and the Canadians are present. So uh, we used to be one of the bigger players in the land of remote sensing. Uh, hopefully, we'll manage to maintain that going forward into the future. But so that's and that's just scraping the sensing skin, if you like. That's just the start of the space piece. We're also doing a lot uh, of terrestrial-based systems, um, so that's increasing in popularity as well. Now, how do I see that all working out? Well, hopefully, we don't end up a wash in data. You know, the, the, one of the biggest problems facing us now in, in the sort of geospatial sciences is big data. So we still, from space, produce more data in a day than we can download or store. Like, we have eclipsed the ability to download every single thing. So we have priorities, but we can't get it all. And, we, you know, it's why if you look sometimes on Google Earth, you can't get the high resolution for the middle of nowhere. Why? No one cares. We're working on it. We'll get there eventually. Uh, so you've got to be a bit realistic about those things going forward. But all that we know, Moore's Law and other things, uh, we're just going to keep growing. I mean, is it a, an undefined set? I don't know. Probably not. I hope that addresses your question. Gary Stoffer here. Uh, there are several gases that are contributing to the change, CO2 being, uh, being the main one we hear about. Uh, would you please mention some of the other gases and their relative importance to change and how difficult or easy is it to monitor those gases? Excellent question, Gary. Um, <clears throat> well, the, the main greenhouse gases are the ones that I had included in the, the other slide. So it's things like methane, uh, CO2, nitrous oxide, water vapors, the big one. Um, and a greenhouse gas is different from other sorts of gas because of its ability to trap long-wave radiation. Uh, so, you know, nitrogen's not a greenhouse gas, uh, thank goodness, or else the world would be unlivable. Um, CO2 is, and, 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 you know, and methane, like methane's worse than CO2, but it's, in a, it's a smaller component. It's also started to level off. Uh, CO2 continues to be on the rise, so it's a little bit more on the, shall we say, on the atmospheric remote sensing radar. Uh, which is a mixed remote sensing joke. Only a few remote sensing people are laughing. Uh, sorry. At any rate, so the relative importance of the greenhouse gases, molecularly they differ, but they also differ by concentration. So CO2 is the big one because we have more of it, and it is on that increasing trajectory that doesn't seem to have a... It's, there's no level-off point. As long as we continue to burn carbon dioxide... Like, it, it's, it's not a poison, Right, so plants use it as part of photosynthesis. You saw that in the wiggle in the graph, right? 
Okay, so we have a, an imbalance in terms of where the continents are located. We are all sit above the equator. I should go back in my slides. But I, I hope everyone knows these things. I'm a geographer, so I, I kind of take for granted that everybody knows that almost all the land mass is in the northern hemisphere. And as a consequence, we have seasonality. And when it greens up, we suck down a whole lot of CO2. All right? And then as part of so turning sunlight into sugar, that's what plants do. Okay, so once we've got that done, and then the plants senesce, right, then the CO2 is coming back up. The problem is it's on this. So there's lots of space effort in taking a look at that. So we just stare through the atmosphere and measure the gas based on absorption spectra. So it's not complicated in that way. So you can measure concentration. Let's not call it easy because there'll be an atmospheric physicist somewhere here who'll smash me around the head for saying that. But it's not. It's non-trivial, right? But it's not like the, the terrestrial target piece is way more complicated because it's so much more variable. Right? So measuring a gas in a big atmosphere is, you know, okay, it's, that's why we're so successful at it. Right? It's relatively straightforward. Um, anyways, I, did I capture all of that, Gary? Okay, thanks. My name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you, Craig, for an enlightening uh, presentation. Enjoyed that very much. Uh, in your presentation, you mentioned the tremendous change that's occurred in your lifetime and even since the Second World War. It seems to me that that change was based on a lot of fundamental basic research having been done previously at our universities uh, globally that uh, has come together and, and given us that, that great step forward. In your view, as a, uh, uh, as a professor at, at, a, at uh, the University of Lethbridge, how do you see that the support for fundamental basic research now as when you started uh, many years ago? I think that was the bus that was going by and I just felt I got tossed under it. The university's got a lot of challenges going forward into the future in terms of fundamental research. Uh, so we are fairly consistently challenged with that vision as part of it uh, as an educational institution. Um, suffice it to say, if it wasn't for fundamental research, many, much of what we know about climate in, in terms of the basic facts uh, came to us very early on. It's, as soon as you started being able to identify different uh, molecules and their various speciations, you're, you're able to then, we had to be able to detect that to do that. But we did that over 100 years ago. That's not new. But what's next? You know, this is the trick. So when we put these, uh, you know, the, the Earth observation satellites up, we're trying to figure that piece out. Do we have the ability at the university to do that? Um, Increasingly, we're getting pressures to not do fundamental research. We're trying to do research now that has industrial relevance. These are the things you hear in, in the public domain. Uh, I guess there's a soapbox I should hop on or hop off at some point. But um, I believe that you know, the, the progress that we've seen is, is often devalued because of the failure of scientists to properly promote and characterize the research that we do, the value that it brings. So this is always the thing that's being questioned is, well, universities are expensive. Uh, not really. That's, that's not a provable fact. Universities are actually extremely cheap places to do research. Uh, having undergraduate and graduate students involved in research programs is stunningly inexpensive. Uh, and putting people out there on a track where they can itch the scratch that can't be scratched, that's research for me. Right? It's the thing that I like to do more than anything pretty much is getting to the things that I don't know. You know, my father always used to say, know what you know, know what you don't know, learn the balance. How much of that balance are we addressing if we can't know what we don't know? 
You know, the longer I go, the more ignorant I become. You know, the vastness of human knowledge is an absolutely stunning thing. And then we only know this little bit. Well, what's the future got in store for us? When oil runs out, what's going to power your economy? What are 35 million people in a little frozen part of the world doing in the G8? That's crazy talk. You shouldn't be there. So Canada, as an international player, does pretty well. Right? So what's next? Don't figure out what the now is. Fundamental research happens uh, to tell you what's next. So the University of Alberta actually released that number in the last round of provincial government cuts to post-secondary institutions. And they were able to... They put a dollar figure on it. It's probably low, but it's trillions. And it's like, well, that's what that mattered. Lots, you know? And it doesn't matter if the universities just generally... We don't know what the students should be getting as outcomes. That's their business. What we should be doing is helping them understand, helping them think, just pushing them on. Thank you, Greg, and thank you for your presentation. And I'd like to congratulate you for working on a topic that after I spent two years looking at it, I came to the conclusion that it is the most complex system that humanity has ever or will ever face again. Anyways, th th there is a, a, a couple of little points that I'm going to make. You mentioned that my name is Cosmos Butsinos. I'm a professional engineer. You mentioned that CO2 is a, um, uh, uh, the largest component of greenhouse gases, but also you mentioned that water is... Yeah, no, water uh, is actually... Okay. That's, actually, that's water true. is 96%, 4% is the CO2. Yeah. And we all focus on the CO2 and not on the water, but that's another story. My question is not... Is not uh, you, you, you specialize in the uh, remote sensing, I understand, but you gave a couple of points of interpretation, and that's where I'm puzzled with interpretations, simplified interpretations of very complex things gives the wrong impression to people and the wrong meaning. For example, you have the satellite that spans around the Earth and gets a set of data, and as it rotates, it gets more data. That's at, the, at a certain position of the sun, like you put a, a position, you get a reading. You put another position in a reading, and you have two temperatures. Temperature doesn't tell you where is the heat coming from or where it is going. But nevertheless, we take the temperature, and then what you do is you average it in order to find an average of the Earth. I don't know if you do it, but what some people yeah. that... Question, know. please. Now, averaging is a very complex process where where a temperature, a, a, a variable, has to be averaged. Well, my question has to come. It's not simple. We're talking a very complicated, so put up with me for it, please. Okay, uh, I'm the, staying with you. The yeah. temperature is a very complex variable that has at least eight dimensions. So it has to be averaged in eight different d directions. Yet, IPCC's report averages only linearly. A plus B divided by 2. Each time you miss one dimension, you have a 12 and a half degree error. And if you have eight dimensions missed, there, so how do you average them? How well, do you put the meaning? You get the point, but what is the meaning, the interpretation? Well, no, it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, there's, okay, so how do we interpret uh, anything when we just look at it? I mean, touching is always preferred, right? But uh, And then... The IPCC, let's not even go there. <laughs> so, 
I mean, as soon as as soon as you've got governmental organizations involved with science, that's usually bad juju generally. Okay, so I always ask my students, you know, do they know how we've done relative to IPCC predictions? And they almost never know. There's been five IPCC reports, and we eclipse each and every one of them. So we're 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 better than the worst case scenario always. You know, it's that's really not a good position to be in. Why governments are involved? They shouldn't be, but science should just be left to scientists. But um, at any rate, then the other one is, what do we do? Well, in remote sensing, these are the classic issues in remote sensing, is how do we know anything? Well, I'll tell you, as soon as we touch it, we know. Right? Direct measurements are always better than remote. And as soon as you pull off the surface, your ability to know anything about that decreases exponentially and rapidly. But at some point, you start knowing things again. It's a really weird process, is remote sensing, but all I can tell you is it is as complicated as you imagined it is, right? Every bit, and probably more, and that's where I work. <laughs> okay, so I, I do a lot of work on uh, the bidirectional reflectance problem, which is if you look at a, a surface and we're supposed to tell you something about it, and it's a wheat field. We've all seen a wheat field wave in the breeze, right? Well, if I image that, is it two things or one thing? <laughs> uh, it's a classic problem, the mowed grass issue. It's grass, we all understand it, but if I'm supposed to give you information about it and someone's gone and, and pressed the leaves down in one direction versus the other direction, my ability to tell you something about that actually decreases. So I actually work on that, and I can tell you no one understands that. And anyone who says they understand that is lying. But, um, but we work very diligently at trying to chip away a, a part of any number of projects that's trying to deal with those intricacies, but... That's why this talk was fun, because I didn't have to deal with that. When the pixels are really big, we understand the information content's got to be relatively simple. I don't think we Im imbue it with too much. Um, but yeah, OK, it's, com it, it's terrible. But if we don't start somewhere, we'll never get anywhere. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I'm Trevor Page. Governments need to know these things because they have to govern. So the information that's collected is vitally important. My only association with remote sensing was back in the 80s when um, we were trying, we meaning the United Nations, was trying to measure crop production in the Sahelian zone of Africa. It had suffered a very serious drought. And I've forgotten the name of the satellite that we used or that we were using at the time, although the French satellite spot was just coming online, yeah. which promised to be better. But the bottom line was that remote sensing didn't work unless you had someone on the ground verifying whether what you were photographing was grass or crops. And you've just said the same thing. Huh? But I'm supposing that the technology has increased since the 70s. Are you saying that we're still in the same position? You've got to have someone on the ground to see whether it's grass or wheat? Wheat's a grass. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, but people don't eat it. Uh, cows do. Uh, anyway, Governments have to fair, govern. Fair, I'm not trying to be trite. Um, the, the thing that we understand now, remote sensing has got a long history of promising you the world and delivering almost nothing. 
Uh, did, did they just broadcast that? Oh, uh, gosh. You've okay, answered, so... You've answered the question. We, we try very hard, but the problem's a lot more complicated than we appreciate, so we're working on it. But I don't ever promise the world and fail to deliver. Okay, so. thanks. I've got one more, and sure. that is, I didn't get your bottom line on whether you think we, from the data that you are gathering, uh, the, the climate is warming where do you stand on that? Oh, there's no standpoint. The climate is warming. So it's, we're okay with that. Okay. Uh, we understand that. We measure it. So we know it. Uh, as I always say, there's, there's no, like the scientific community doesn't really debate these things. It's all rates and magnitudes, how much, how fast. Um, that's really what we need to know. I'm Frank, Frank J. Toth. I'd like to, first of all, Professor, let me congratulate Mr. Tad Moot, the name. No, no, you, you wrote a beautiful article referring to part of this. Congratulations. Anyway, I, uh, I'd like to get back to the usefulness of all this. We're talking about not $39, 39 339 for these satellites. We use them for spying, what have you. Now, are you in direct competition with Mr. Harper? He is the pariah, pariah of the environmental world of the, in our environmental conceptions. Are you, we, ha, I have never, I like to do a lot of research and reading, but I've never heard of this before. You, are you in direct competition? He says, this is all baloney, same well, as Fox that you mentioned. So where's the practicality of all this? If you have your senior government yeah. defying what you're saying. Well, what? yeah, I suppose I'd be in direct defiance of that. That's kind of a fun place to be. Um, a logical one to be as well. Um, no, I mean, uh, politics doesn't factor in as, uh, to my world. So we're not particularly concerned. I, when I'm out at the meetings and, and chatting with the folks uh, that, that are doing this kind of work with the folks from, you know, whether it's NASA or CNES or whatever, like the, Euro, the ESA guys, they don't care what Mr. Harper believes. I don't care what Mr. Harper believes either. I don't care what anybody believes. That's not important. It's, you know, these are factual things that we're working on. So... Uh, he can believe that it's all hooey if he likes. We don't care. But are you it? Well, I guess I'm not really promoting it. I, scientists are, I, I know, I'm personally usually fairly reticent to, to hop on board bandwagons. Um, I tell my students just to think. And if you can gather evidence and you can make evidence-based arguments, that's usually, that usually trumps belief. But you can't really go after someone's belief. If he needs to believe that the economy of Canada doesn't need these bits of information to function, well, I suppose that's okay, but just let's keep measuring it to see what's happening. But, you know, I, it's a kind of a tough one. I mean, if he was here today, I'd tell him, I, again, I don't care what he believes. I just care that he does something. You know, and in, in the lack of evidence, what do you got? Ignorance? Okay, well, let's keep going then. Got to be able to do a little bit better than that. There isn't actually that many people working on this. The shocking part you know, if you actually look at it as a global thing, uh, 
There's not many of us that actually do this sort of work as a total. Uh, so please don't hack us off at the knees. We're just getting rolling. But that's what I would tell Harper. Like, and then I'd say, okay, you can go and shut down all the science you like, and all it'll leave you with is, is no knowledge going forward. Oh, I do. I, yeah, if there's a stump, I'm on it. Don't worry about that. I, I've, written, I've, written, I've written enough letters to my MOAs and my MPs and my Prime Minister that they don't respond anymore, so I'm sure I'm not alone. Uh, they go, oh, another one from Colburn. We don't need to listen to that guy. He thinks he knows everything. So, Excellent. I'm, I'm glad to be a card-carrying member of that group. Uh, uh, moderator, am I allowed one more question? I don't see anybody else standing, so go ahead. Craig, uh, recently there was a, well, I don't know whether there was controversy about it or not, but the way they measured the sea ice, uh, yeah. could you explain what the story was about that? Sure, sure. That, that, that's actually a good one. Uh, in, in 1952, as I said in my talk, we standardized how we measured temperature at a point, uh, and the wiggle in the line went down. But there's still wiggles in the line, right? Like we still, are, if we take point measurements and we extend them out over large areas, then there's still these bits of deviation that other people can say, well, I averaged it this way, and I weighted it this way, and I did it this way. And then scientists usually, we publish the, the methods by which we derive those answers. So you say, well, here it is. I've laid it out for you, and if you give me the same data, we produce different answers. It's by this method. This is what we did. So in Canada, we've been measuring sea ice extent for a fairly long period of time. In fact, we devoted a large uh, amount of federal money to the creation of a satellite system to, to measure that exclusively. Uh, the issue was pre- uh, dating the other day, there, there was a variety of methods that were used for doing that. So when should you evaluate sea ice? At what point? Well, should it be a modal value, a, me, a median value, a mean value? What, what period of time during the year? We know it fluctuates, but what we need to know is how is that change being measured? Well, without consistency in method, there is nothing. Okay, so there's, th that's what's there. So what they've done is simply, uh, I was explaining this uh, to uh, one of my graduate students the other day. I said, you know, when you wash the window, you go back over that same spot, or at least that's what my mom used to do, and point <laughs> go back over that spot. Okay, so we've got the data. We're polishing. So we've now got a method that we think is better. So the scientists in Ottawa have said, okay, this is, we'd like to rerun that data set, and we'd like to do it based on this new, this new method to establish this. We haven't been doing this for very long. So we're just, we're just going back over that data. Okay, now we've got that a little better. We're free to go back over it again. We're not changing the outcomes. Right? We're just analyzing the data. We're, we might use it a little differently. We might polish the result a bit, um, but that's what we do going forward. So that's pretty normal in science. So Yeah, so we've rewritten how we do it. Uh, and that did change some of the results, as one would expect. But then we now know how everyone's doing it. I think that's important. Okay, so it gives us a, a consistency and evaluative criteria. Okay, other questions? Um, Craig, since uh, I see nobody... You have a written question, Robert? Oh, no, he's... Oh, go ahead. Okay. My name is Robert Smith. As I understand the models, most of them are mechanical models. Um, given that plants are part of the CO2 cycle, are there any models which incorporate biology? 
as far as global's like the global climate efforts, I'm not aware of anything that is working that's not mechanistic at this point. Um, I just don't think we'd have the data. We'll have the data in a bit, but I, I'm not aware of anything. All models are mechanistic or something like that. Something that's purely mechanical that just takes a value and tosses it in. We didn't even used to have topography. Since uh, I see nobody standing at the mic, so uh, let us thank Craig for his excellent presentation. Uh, now he can talk about other things than scotch. But if you really want to know the delicacy and the intricacy of a single malt scotch, ask him. He can give you 20 lectures on it. Anyway, thank you, Craig. Wonderful.